Keltec is a proud sponsor of the Talking Lead Podcast and the Leadhead Brigade. It's an honor to have you on again. I really well, appreciate this. So I'm like, there's like 45 minutes left. I'm doing the audio version of it. So yeah. I'm, I'm like where the Raven guy has kicked in to start doing his his plot. So I'm interested to see the rest of it. <laughs> I definitely wanted to get through the Earl Swagger taken out. How detailed do you want to get into the book? You just want to tease, right? Yep. Okay. I'll leave. I'll leave that up to you. I'm going to turn you up just a little bit more there. And you're okay with me recording the the video? Oh, of course. Okay, great. So I'm going to I get this. Was better looking. Ah, uh, what are you talking about? You're a stellar looking man. <laughs> All right, you ready to get started? Yep, I am. All right. All right, all right, all right, lead heads. We are back with another episode of the Talking Lead Podcast. I'm your host, Lefty, educating the uneducated for 10 years now here on the Talking Lead Podcast. We are celebrating 10 years by uh, bringing you lead heads in and rewarding you for all your loyalty over the years. Uh, we just gave away $10,000 in prizes, and uh, we hope that. That goes a long way in saying thanks to you leadheads for all the support that we've had over the years. So another way that we're celebrating is we're having cool people on the show. We continue to bring you cool, interesting people, products, uh, and attending cool places. And we just got back from SHOT Show. So we've got tons and tons and tons of interview from SHOT Show uh, hitting the airwaves, so make sure that you're paying attention because we're going to be dropping more episodes than normal, so you don't want to miss out on any of those. And as you're listening to this, uh, we already dropped one, so make sure you go back and uh, check our um, kickoff to SHOT Show, the 2023 SHOT Show, from the official lead quarters there at Caltech. And today, I'm excited about this. I'm, I'm giddy <laughs> because uh, this man is a legend in the action thriller uh, novel arena and uh, he, you know he's in the movies too and he was a guest last year he is the author known for the Bob Lee swagger novels that you guys are so uh, into and and the movie shooter from his book point of impact Stephen Hunter is joining us today ladies and gentlemen with his new release the bullet garden which is an Earl Swagger novel that goes back to Bob Lee Swagger's dad. So, Steve, welcome in, buddy. Thank you very much for having me, Lefty. Uh, we're glad to have you back. Uh, it's an honor. And uh, this new book, you know, I've been excited to hear, you know, your your take on Earl Swagger and his history. And uh, you teased it some in some of the, the Bob Lee Swagger novels, and you really get into the history of Earl Swagger in the Bullet Garden here. Well, I, I it was uh, I kept hearing from people who wanted another Earl book, and th there was always, as there always are, publishing politics involved. Uh, I had trouble getting people interested. Finally, I connected with uh, Emily Bessler of Simon and Schuster. She's the best thriller editor in New York, and uh, she was very enthusiastic about this idea. And uh, once I had her on my team, uh, you couldn't hold me back from writing <laughs> the book. And writing it was writing it was really a great deal of fun. It was a, a wallow in World War II uh, nostalgia and culture and uh, hardware. And I just had uh, so much fun doing the work. I, I can't I can't remember a book that I've had so much fun. Uh, writing because uh, writing is sometimes not much fun uh, but this time it was a lot of fun and uh, this is the end product I'm finally done and it's finally <laughs> out and we're seeing what people think of it now, as we're recording this uh, it just released the day before January 24th so it is out there it is available for you leadheads um, the the hardcover the paperback and the Kindle version uh, which is the one that I have been listening to and Man, I got to tell you, it, it, you know, you said you had fun with this. It shows in your writing. 
that you know it's like wow this must have been such a fun book to research and because you get into so much detail you know not only about uh, places and, and areas of world war ii but uh, again everybody knows our listeners know that you are an avid you know 2a proponent uh, a gun lover you love your firearms and you really get into the details of the firearms in this one and i love that about it well that was one of the great pleasures you know um when I look back on writing this book, I realized that it was in some sense it was like a wallow in my childhood. <laughs> That's not to say that I had a childhood in World War II, but I did have a childhood in the 50s. And most people think of the 50s as Elvis and poodle skirts and Thunderbirds and uh, the birth of rock and roll and network television. But what they forget is that the 50s was saturated in World War II culture. I mean, oh, yeah. four out of every five movies, uh, three out of every five uh, books, uh, two out of every five TV shows, and uh, nine out of every ten comic books were about World War II. I mean, we just couldn't stop talking about it. And so that gave me, I was a total war junkie, and I, I read and I watched and I thought, and I absorbed, and so in a sense, uh, well, this was like a, uh, it was like a return to childhood. It was just the pleasant, the pleasantness of going back. And I knew a lot of stuff already, and it was just, it was just a great, great, uh, intellectual, imaginative, and even sensual pleasure to write to write the book. Yeah, it, it definitely shows. Now, for our new listeners. Uh, that are, are joining the podcast here. Uh, Stephen has written over 20 novels. Um, do you know the exact number where you're at now, Steve? 25. I think this is my 25th. Yeah, so getting close to, to 30 uh, novels. He's a retired chief film critic for the Washington Post, a Pulitzer Prize winner in 2003 for Distinguished Criticism, and Steve has also published two collections of film criticism and nonfiction work, uh, American Gunfight. So those are some uh, awesome credentials there, and he keeps well, adding Steve's to been them. Well, a busy boy. Well, I can only imagine, and and you know, it's hard for me to believe that somebody didn't want to jump on this, you know, from the beginning to go back and talk about the Earl Swagger uh, days and to have you write about that. This this seems to me like this would be a great movie. Uh, are there talks to? to bring Earl Swagger to the big screen? Oh, uh, gosh, I wish I could say yes to that. <laughs> but um, my movie career has not prospered, and there's a lot of reasons. Uh, this book, the rights are available. It is has not been sold. I have no uh, reports as to uh, if and when or how they will be sold. My hope at this point is that it does well uh, as a book, and that that propels it to attention. Uh, I, I I mean, I, I couldn't agree more that it would make a, a good movie or I think it would make an even better, uh, like, six or eight episode Netflix show. Yes. Or, you know, something like that, because that's the way you could get into some of that detail. One of the problems with the movie process is you've got to cut so much off and streamline, and that's why people go to movies from books and they're always disappointed and i just think that the long-term television show is a much better uh forum or way to express the reality of a, of a particular novel anyway uh so no right now but uh we have uh, we we're we're always optimistic sure well you know they did that with shooter originally it was a movie and then here recently, uh, in the past I guess five years ago or so, you know, they turned it into one of those long series TV shows, and I really enjoyed that uh, in the detail. And you got to know the character a lot better as a reader of your novels. You know, it was bringing more of that that character into it, and um, I I think this would be yeah perfect for something like that. Yeah. Yeah, I would love to see it as long as they spend a lot of money on it. Yeah. You know, World War II was kind of a big war, and in order to capture, uh, you know, you've got to you've got to rent at least uh, one uh, King Tiger tank. You can't do it without that. There's only <laughs> one left in the world, so I got a feeling it's kind of expensive. Yeah, but all the more reason to you know to bring them back, and with today's technology. Well, that's certainly true. It could yeah. be done. 
uh, I don't see I don't see any reason why they couldn't do that. Terry has an affinity for reliability and function. A former Navy SEAL and Tier 1 operator, he approaches things from a practical performance perspective. Whether he's backpacking in a remote wilderness area or out on an arduous hunt in austere terrain, he's got a go big or go home approach. It's tempered with a minimalist mindset. Take what you need and nothing you don't. Terry truly appreciates the Keltec Sub 2000. This 9mm semi-automatic carbine folds in half to tuck neatly away in situations where space is a premium. It may be a pistol caliber, but its 16-inch barrel translates to velocity, which translates to power downrange. The rifle features Picatinny rails and M-lock attachment points, so he can accessorize it the way he needs it for every hour. Innovation. Performance. Keltec. Give us a kind of high level. I know we don't want to go into all the details of the bullet garden, but just kind of give us a you know high level overview for our readers uh, because I know they're going to want to pick this one up. Well, it's uh, it's a plot I've used before, uh, but with these unusual details. It is true that in 1944, the United States, uh, right after the Normandy invasion, uh, went pouring into Normandy, the, the French province, and uh, expecting an easy go of it. And it was one of the biggest intelligence failures of the war. So they didn't realize the landscape, uh, this is called the bocage, uh, meaning the brush, was ideal for defensive warfare. And the Germans had had two years to, to uh, harden it up. And they had done a brilliant job. You know, they're great engineers. Uh, and they built a, essentially a steel rat trap and they caught the American First Army in it, and nothing happened. They went into an almost a World War One-like uh, stalemate with the Americans on one side and the Germans on the other. And every time we poked our head up, someone got a sniper bullet in the head. Yeah. Uh, it was great sniper territory. So my book takes off from that reality. Uh, it takes off from the reality that Omar Bradley once ordered or thought of ordering that all German prisoner sniper prisoners be executed on the spot. And I talked him out of that. And it's a war crime, General Bradley. Uh, so as I have it, uh, they try and find the best combat shot uh, in the uh, American services. Doesn't have to be in the army. They find Earl Swagger uh, teaching uh, uh, marksmanship at uh, Paris Island. Uh, after having fought at Guadalcanal, Bougainville, and Tarawa. And they bring him over, and because they think a Marine sergeant wouldn't quite have the cachet and the power needed to do this job, he is given a temporary uh, commission as a major in the United States Army. He's attached to the Office of Strategic Services, and he is turned loose to try and deal with his sniper problem, particularly a group of SS snipers who seem to have a weird gift for shooting people in the dark. And that's really profoundly affecting the morale. So what we do is we follow him through the politics of London and through various uh, uh, safaris to the, east, to the Western Front uh, to try and get a lead on who these guys are, what they what their technology is, how they operate, uh, what their schedules are. And his whole point is he's trying to set up a counter-sniper ambush. But the book, uh, it wanders through London and it encounters other plots. Yeah. It encounters politics and the OSS and encounters some espionage difficulties. Uh, it, it, it just, I had, you know, I couldn't stop writing. I, I had so much fun. It brings in some of the literary figures in London at that time. Uh, George Orwell, my hero, makes a guest appearance. Uh, so does some other people. So does uh, uh, the great white hunter that Hemingway enjoyed. He's called Philip Wilson in the Hemingway books, but he was also Robert Wilson, but he was actually Philip Percival. And uh, I, it was just... Uh, it was just, it was fun. It was so darn much fun. I was sorry to see it over. Well, it doesn't have to be the last one, right? 
Well, I'm. Who knows? <laughs> there might be other stories. Is this the well. um, the first uh, full Earl Swagger novel that you've written? No, I've written two others. Uh, one was called The Hot Springs, mm-hmm. uh, and the other was called um, Oh Havana. That was it. Yeah, he was in yeah. Havana. Uh, you know what, Lefty? I sometimes even myself forget. You've uh, written so many. I mean, it, it's, well, it's I, understandable. It, they just, uh, I don't know. I, and I, I can't remember. This is my third full Earl Swagger novel. Okay. Uh, he does make a subsequent, he does make uh, substantial appearances, but isn't the central figure in a variety of, because he's so much more probably Swagger's past. And uh, Bob Lee Swagger, there's his also Havana. a novel in which, yeah, his fate is, uh, uh, it's called, um, and uh, this is where his, this is where we first see him. Yeah, there it is. And we learn his fate. And so everything else has been done in the light of knowing how he's going to end up. And what we've been doing in these other books is learning who he was and why he was so important and why Bob Lee looks up to him so much. Yeah. So Pale, Pale Horse Coming. And Havana are those the other two? Yeah, that's correct. So uh, three books in the Earl Swagger, and I think this one goes into a little more. We get a little more history about him in this one. Uh, yes, that's right. Uh, I, you know, another influence of this book was at the end of the war, a whole bunch of novels, novelists who'd been in the war wrote what I think of as the big novels of world war ii you know they were 400 pages or more uh, the young lions was one the king mutiny was one the naked and the dead was one the big war was one away all but i love those books in the 50s i just read them over and over run silent run deep was another one and they were they were big and they were packed full of of subplots and characters and you didn't just see one officer and one squad in one event you saw a whole campaign you saw a front you saw uh, you know the, you saw the uh, you got the widescreen technicolor version of the yeah. war and <laughs> that was I, I wanted to do that too you know i i admired those books so much they were such a pleasure and i i wanted to do that too so for our viewing audience, um, again, the Bullet Garden is available. It's out. You can get it now. You can go to Amazon. Uh, there's several other places. Do you have a website yourself? Um, that uh, I think there's. I have a Facebook site, uh, and and that's. I, I, I again, I don't want to sound like a grumpy old man, but. <laughs> I, you know, the social media, they didn't have that in World War II. God right. imagine if they did. But, uh, <laughs> but I haven't really jumped into that bucket. Uh, I have, as I say, I have a Facebook presence. Uh, there might be a website, but I think it's, it's Simon & Schuster runs it. I don't run it. I, I, to be honest, so what I'm saying is I don't really know the answer to that. You know Absurd what? I will sad. put a link in our show notes for our listeners. Um, uh, I'm pretty sure you got one. I think we did it last the, the last episode. Well, I hope so. <laughs> we'll, we'll take care of you on that one. But you can go okay. to Amazon, Leadheads. Uh, I know you can go yeah, there. Yeah, that's Amazon. During book selling periods, Amazon becomes my website. Yeah, there you go. So uh, their little caption that they have about the book here says, The long-anticipated origin story of legendary Marine fan favorite and father of literary icon Bob Lee takes us to the battlefields of World War II as Earl Swagger embarks on a top-secret and deadly mission from Pulitzer Prize-winning and New York Times best-selling author Stephen Hunter. So I, that's nice, isn't that nice? You know, you got a little thing from from our buddy Jack down here, Jack Carr. He said, hmm. "From a true master at the pinnacle of his craft." Well, that's good to hear from Mister JC. Maybe it's true. I don't know. I don't know. No, he mentioned you, I think, in one of his um, <laughs> one of his novels a while back. Uh, I don't know, but uh, I want to talk a little more about the the research that you did on this, if that's okay. That went into into the Bullet Garden. Well, it was both intense and lighthearted. Um, I thought I knew so much about World War II 
And in fact, I knew all the weapons. I knew the general, uh, uh, the general thrust of the uh, strategy. You know, I, I had a good sense of uh, the texture of the various fronts and the battles. And I've written about it before. Right. Uh, however, I really did not appreciate the Normandy campaign. And one of the reasons is that everybody thinks that Normandy refers to the invasion, June 6th. D-Day. Okay, we invaded Normandy, then we drove across France, we liberated Paris, then we drove across uh, Germany and tried to reach Berlin. There was a terrible battle in Normandy called the Battle of Normandy, and that was uh, when the American troops, as I mentioned before, got stuck in the bullet garden and could barely move and took enormous casualties and completely lost all their initiative, all their momentum, and just essentially stalled out. And that was a two-month battle finally broken in late August of 44 by something called Operation Cobra, which was something they had to put together on the fly. And it was a massive uh, smashing attack through the Bocage involving armored units. Uh, it's very difficult to assemble that many men, that many tanks that fast and to get off the, uh, get off the X mark. Yeah. Uh, and so it's against that. Ba- so that was all new to me. That was all new to me. That was me. all new and research for I'd you? I'd heard of the Battle of the Hedgerows, but I hadn't really thought about it. And it was a terrifying thing. I mean, it was, someone said, and maybe I said this to you before, I think it was, I can't remember who, but someone said it was like a thousand Guadalcanals. It was a jungle. Mm-hmm. It was uh, just, a, it was a, just a, a nightmare to fight in and to patrol in. And uh, to try and find your way in is very confusing. And the, the roads weren't big enough for tanks. Uh, There's other things going on. There was lots of bad weather. There was a shortage of artillery shells, and it was uh, it was not fun to take a to take part in. So I had to learn that. I had to. I consulted a lot of books, and uh, I wish I'd been able to get over there. And unfortunately, my body is a little. Uh, it it got old. Well, travel's not human. been easy the past few years. So. No, it has not. COVID made it even harder. So I did you do I, uh, Google Maps. Uh, I wasn't able to walk through the Bocage, but yeah. I have a pretty good idea of what it was like. Were you? Did you use uh, Google Maps at all? Or able to? Oh, I sure did. Use yeah, the hell I out of maps. those. I, I uh, <laughs> maps are are very interesting, and they are always a reliable uh, stimulant. And I need stimulus to work. And I can look at a map, and it just uh, provokes my imagination in uh, deep ways. Yeah. Well, you have a very detailed imagination. There's no doubt about well, that. Thank you. Um, so, were you able to? And I know you know it's. There's only a few, a handful left. But were you able to get in touch with any, you know, soldiers from from World War Two? You know, and do any interviews? That's an interesting question, Lefty. And the reason, and the answer is no. And there's a reason behind that. Uh, it's one thing to use secondary material because I feel I can do anything with it I want. Sure. Uh, if I talk to a soldier and he tells me a story, and I might want to use part of that story, or I might want to change the way it happened uh, to make it more dramatic. I might even change the outcome to make it more dramatic. And then he reads it. And he feels betrayed. Yeah. Well, I don't need that in my life. I've, I've had that experience. And, you know, there's no way I could write something that he's going to say, yeah, yeah, that's exactly like it was. He's going to say, no, no, our socks were pretty warm. It was somehow it was it was through the chest that I was always called. You know, it's yeah. that kind of that kind of detail is always going to disappoint them. So rather than disappoint them. It, I find it more liberating to, yeah. Smart to, man. To, yeah. <laughs> and you even, you even kind of make note of that in this, um, this novel. There's a, there's a kind of a little shout out to that in this novel. Now, Hemingway, you, you mentioned Hemingway quite a bit. I don't, I'm not trying to give anything away at all, but you, you mentioned earlier that you give some shout outs to some literary, you know, 
some real people and characters in your life. Did he have any kind of influence in your writing career at all? Yes and no. Um, I find him at this point. Well, yeah, it was funny when I was growing up in the fifties and the early, he was the writer. He was the writer that everyone wanted to be like and compared themselves. And, uh, perhaps, uh, he was more as an icon than as a literary figure. Yeah. Uh, when I read the book, some of them I liked, some of them I didn't like, some of them I hated. Uh, and uh, uh, it became obvious even then when biography was much less confrontational than it is now, that he was not a very decent man. He was quite a... Uh, He's quite a rather despicable person. He betrayed everyone he knew. Uh, he, he he was one of those guys. He he needed uh, Zantax or uh, or uh, you know yeah, yeah. Uh, antidepressant because he was so nasty to people and he turned again. And if you you just he turned against everyone and uh, he was also he was a liar and a braggart and a self promoter. So. I sort of got away from him. And then a few years ago, as the biographies began to come out and tell the truth, I got kind of interested in him again, not as a writer, but as a man. Yeah. Because to me, he was an example of what we should not be and what we cannot be. He was a fascinating monster. Monsters are always fascinating. Yeah. And he was not a good man. And, uh, had I been able to hang out with him, he well, first place he would not have been interested in me, and uh, I, I think I would have soured on his presence very quickly. Uh, so now I read about him rather than reading him. Sure, yeah, and that makes sense too. Well, I tell you one thing: one of the curiosities of Hemingway in World War II was that he had the big reputation, but his wife at the time, a woman named Martha Gellhorn. She was a real combat correspondent. And as a journalist, she had a much more uh, effective uh, and brilliant career as a, as a correspondent of World War II than he did. I mean, he just hung out with generals. And she, she was the only journalist on Normandy Beach, by the way. That'll give you some idea. She snuck in aboard a, uh, a medical ship. And while all the correspondents spent uh, Normandy in a ship off the uh, the beach, just seeing smoke, yeah. she was actually on the beach. Oh wow! And she wrote a series of brilliant pieces for Collier's magazine. And I use a lot of her metaphors and similes in this book because they're so vivid and they're things I could never come up with. And what was her name? Martha Gellhorn, uh, they divorced. She actually was the one of Hemingway's wives. He had four. Uh, he dumped the first two. Uh, he almost, well, he had troubles with the fourth one, but she was the only one that gave as good as she got, and she was the <laughs> one who dumped him, and yeah. he never he never got over that. That 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 annoyed him till the day he died. Uh, she was a beautiful woman. I'm sure woman he deserved too. it, though, you yeah. know. From, from what you hear about him nowadays. Enough about him. We're here to talk about you. Yeah. So the firearm, I want to talk firearms now. Um, okay, let's do and that. And specifically the, the sniper rifles that you chose for uh, this, this book. Uh, talk about the, the different sniper rifles that you implemented in here. Well, there were, uh, there were a variety of, of uh, dedicated sniper rifles in World War II. The... Uh, we had we tried to fix up a uh, M1 rifle. It was a variant called the M1D, and it had a little uh, Lyman scope. It was not even because of the M uh, Garand rifle ejected through the top. It had to be mounted to the left, uh, and sort of a cantilever type of uh, administration. Uh, the best of the Allied rifles was probably a. Uh, the British uh, had a wonderful sniper rifle, which they built uh, on Holland and Holland built for them on their uh, on their Mark One Enfield. Uh, they used uh, uh, the scopes were much more primitive then than they are now. They were not as good as they were about to get, and they were only a little bit better 
than the scopes we used in World War II. I'm sorry, in, in World War One. Uh, the Germans, for their part, and they went through. And then probably the the most effective uh, sniper weapon in World War One was that's it. That's the Lee Enfield. That's a it's a quite a good quite a good rifle. Uh, the one that uh, I, I've actually used that in a book. I wrote a book set on the uh, Russian front, and which I brought that into play. It was not an easy trick getting it into that book, but somehow <laughs> I managed. That would be the most creative. That and getting uh, Earl Swagger as a Marine into the into world, the into army. The, you know, that was pretty <laughs> damn creative too. Anyway, uh, the Russians had a great sniper rifle. Is there? Typical Mosin agent uh, rifle of 1898 that they'd fought World War One with, uh, and the Russian Revolution with, and all the subsequent revolutions, and they were able to put a uh, very solid telescopic sight on it, and that turned out to be a very effective uh, rifle. There it is. That's a uh, that's and it and they had a very aggressive sniper program. Sometimes they had uh, they they had women snipers. Again, I wrote a book uh, about one of them, and they were very uh, they were very very uh, they understood before anyone. And it's so odd. Militaries forgot about snipers when there wasn't a war going on. Yeah. Then they fought a war, and suddenly they realized, you know what we have better get some snipers and they threw into uh action sniper training and snipe, sniper deployment it was always an afterthought and it always uh, eventually uh worked out for them and uh, the russians got it before anyone they understood how important and devastating to morale the sniper could be and so they were the ones who uh uh they, their uses of snipers is what caused the Germans to use the snipers. The German usage of snipers caused the Brits to use snipers. And the Brits' use of snipers caused the American to use the snipers. So it was sort of a, a chain reaction, a circular chain reaction that that uh, created the sniper rifles of World War II. Uh, I, I owned... Uh, most of those rifles, with the exception of the M1D. And there's another rifle. I'm not going to say what it is. Yeah. It was probably the best. Uh, but it was not deployed by any of the official belligerents of World War II. Uh, Would that but, be the one that um, that Earl had? Yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, yes, right. Yeah. And Earl ends up with a the Holland and Holland hunting rifle in a caliber that I love. I'd never heard of it before I was, did some research. But this is such a cool name for a for a cartridge. A 240 Apex. Apex. 240 Apex Magnum. Yeah. How cool is that? I, love I had that. to get that in. And that's a real that's a real round. Yeah, that existed. It is, it is indeed. I, I almost bought one of those. The cheapest one I could find was six thousand bucks. But, uh, oh, you got that. In the Come end, on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. In the end, I bought a, uh, it, it turns out the 240 Apex is very similar to a 243. So I bought a, a, uh, a Mauser that had been converted to 243, Mauser Sporter. Beautiful rifle, was not 6,000 bucks uh, to stand in for that rifle. Gotcha. Now, <clears throat> that's the next question I was going to ask you. Um, of all the firearms that you have in the novel, not just the sniper rifles, but you know, you talk about all the the legendary World War II. Uh, I think they all pretty much make an appearance in here. Uh, the Thompson and the grease gun, and you know, uh, if you do you have trigger time on all those. Uh, yes, some more than others. I own a Thompson. I own a uh, Grand, a very nice Grand. I own an M1 carbine. Uh, I own two of the British sniper rivals. I have fired once at a, a rental range in Arizona in M a grease gun. Uh, what astounded me about it was how slow the rate of fire was. It, mm -hmm. You could almost trigger uh, at that rate. Uh, a a semi-auto version variant of it. Uh, and that was They liked that because it let them stay on the target yeah. more, whereas the other guns... Had so much, you know, the, Roy, the recoil, uh, 
uh, it creases and it just pull them off target so much. Um, I, I have the Moisen sniper rifle. I wish I'd gotten more out of it. I, I sold it. I've actually been selling guns of late. I just, um, what can I say? I, I, I like to get the gun stuff right. And one of my ideas for these books is that the guns are accurate and that I don't make mistakes. I have made mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. Uh, I wish I hadn't, but yeah. so it goes. Yeah. Uh, it I, I try to get trigger time on any gun I, I, I uh, talk about yeah. or write about. And where do you go? Do you have a range that you? That uh, you like there's there? a bunch of ranges. Sure, you travel all over in the this world. Area. Yeah. So I, I I don't have any trouble shooting. Uh, going to shoot. Uh, it just takes. Uh, you know, it gets me out of the house every day or nearly every day, mm-hmm. and uh, it's so much fun. Even thousands of, of cartridges later. And 40 years later, it's still just about the most fun I can have. And I, I, that and the, uh, uh, martini, uh, between the two <laughs> of those, I am a very happy man. There you go. What's your favorite martini mix? Oh, I, uh, we're, I'm a Tito's guy. I like Tito's dry, uh, with, uh, uh, a little bit dirty up. I like the classic martini glass. Makes me feel like a madman. Like the two olives like, in there. Yeah. So of course, and I, I, I have a, I want to write a piece on the third olive because the third olive is so much better than the first two olives because it's in the, it's in the, the it's just loaded with vodka. Yeah. yeah it's just it's in the mix. It's like, a, it's like a Death Star of vodka. <laughs> I just, uh, and it's so plump and. I just, yeah, it's just, there's something about it that's magical. And that's the one you savor, too. The other two, yes, you just kind of exactly, chomp down, exactly. and then that one, it, you know, it's, it's you for savoring. And it when it's gone. Yeah, yeah. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Now, um, I think I remember this correctly. I could be wrong, uh, but I think, did you go to a SHOT Show last year? Uh, I went two years ago. Uh, I was given a very good, a very nice award, uh, the Grits Grisham Award, by uh, Gritz's son, Tom, who's a very decent man. Nice. Possibly you know him. He's also a radio personality. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I, I, I would have liked, I thought there were a lot of interesting guns at the SHOT Show this mm-hmm. year. The RIA 5.0 looks very interesting to me. And uh, the, the, it's just too damn big. Oh, you know, it's, it's just so humongous. huge. And I'm not as mobile as I once was. And the only other uh, way to do it would be to, on one of those little scooters. And I just, I think I'd feel ludicrous. Beep, beep, beep. Watch out. Get out Bobby's of the way. Coming through. Bobby Swagger coming through. Beep, beep. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, that's. Have that's, flashing that's signs that say Bobby yeah, Swagger on board. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, people would definitely get out of your way. No doubt about it. Did you go this year? No, I didn't go this okay. year. Okay. I'll, I last one I went to was 2020. Then they didn't have it, and then they had it last year. Right. And then this was uh, I got got back in the swing this year. And you talk about you know they expanded it over into the Caesar uh, Hotel now. Oh, it's amazing how big it is. Yeah. There's no way you can get through that in in four. Is it four days? Yeah. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, yeah. Friday. Because range day is Monday. Um, but there's just there's just no way and. I never get to walk around anyway because I'm I'm there in the studio doing recordings. I did right. nearly thirty interviews. You've got to cover it too, right? I'm sorry. You've got to cover it too. You've got to be doing interviews, right? And, and looking at new uh, uh, merchandise. Yeah, so the people uh, bring I, it to I me. Say, <laughs> for an, from sitting in a leather chair in Baltimore, Maryland, I love the shot show. I love all the coverage. I love seeing the new guns. I go from blog to blog and and uh, site to site and see who's got the best coverage. And I like I like to see what what the guys are doing. Yeah. It's always it's really it's like watching a pro football game. I think I'd much rather watch it on uh, good on analogy. TV yeah, and go to it. I live 
a mile from the Raven Stadium, but I don't. Uh, uh, I'd much rather sit home and watch I'm the, TV. I'm the same way. I'd rather watch a football game or MMA on TV than than actually attend it. It's more entertaining. I got my refrigerator right there. My drinks don't <clears throat> cost twenty bucks a pop. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> What's it's not much fun without that. That's right. That's what makes it even funner. And the chips and dip. I'm a yes, yeah. My weakness, chips and dip. I absolutely love them. But it was a good show this year. I don't. I, it, the attendance from what people have told me was better than the previous year, but it's still not that, you know, overly crowded yeah. thing that just keeps people from. It's like, I would think the first day would be the best day to go. Cause it's probably not quite as packed, but I, you know, the second and third days, it just, it just gets so jammed. Yeah. Like Thursday um, seemed to be the busiest day. Yeah. Uh, just, just by visually seeing people walk by the yeah. the studio, um, but well, I have the awkward situation of being what can I say semi quasi demi famous, and I get recognized not a lot but occasionally, and that can be very that can be a lot of fun, but it also can be extremely. You probably have hindrance. the same yeah. issue. It can be very. Uh, you, you know, you can't get away from people. They expect you, you to be a two steps and then way. you run into somebody and it takes you 30 minutes to get to the next booth. Yes, exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's got its ups and downs. It does. It does. So who's your go-to when you're, you know, you really, the good coverage, you're like, I know that I'm going to get good coverage, good information. Where do you go? Who do you give, oh, give them a clue. go to the firearm blog? Yeah. Uh, a good I, I think those guys do a good job. Uh, I don't know any of them, but I do like James Reeves. Uh, he's always he's lots of fun. James uh, was at the booth. We did an interview with yeah, James. It was his, one of the guys. I like them all. His birthday. I don't know his real name. His named uh, named blog is Hop. He's a big, tall, skinny kid. He's obviously very smart, uh, and he's. Uh, uh, I've always found his work to be uh, to be enjoyable. Nice, yeah. The I'm friends with the guys there at the firearms blog. So yeah, they do excellent coverage of you know everything that they do. They're and all the notch. magazines do good jobs. Uh, they they on their sites they 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 work very hard to give you the best coverage. The gun that of the guns that I'm watching now uh, that I saw debuting. Uh, the one that caught my attention is the, the RIA uh, 5.0. It's a uh, it's a new nine millimeter. I have to say it's ugly. It looks like a a Glock <laughs> as designed by a child. And since the Glock already looks like it was designed by a child, you can tell that it's very ugly gun. But if for some reason I'm a sucker for new mechanisms that reduce recoil. And this supposedly, you know, every year there's a new gun with less recoil. And, of course, the truth right. is you're never going to get rid of recoil. That's part of that physics. Uh, uh, physics uh, speak the truth that marketing departments don't. They can minimize looks, it, but it's never, yeah, it's never going to go yeah. away. No doubt about yeah. it. Yeah. I was trying to see if I could find that um, that 9mm that you're talking about. Rock Island Armory? Is that, is that who Yeah. RIA 5.0. Maybe they'll send me a free one if I can get you to run the picture. Absolutely. We'll it is a sort of a corrupt world in that <laughs> there's a lot of under the under the table relationships. Oh, yeah. People, people send people stuff all the time to give people. them free coverage, and that's just part of it. Yes, it is part Let's see of if it. this is it. Is that it? Uh, that would seem to be it, yeah. See if you can get a nice sideways look at it. See what they got here. There it there is. There it is. See, see how it looks like a Glock? But with that a, grip. A slightly different angle to the grip. Yeah, that grip is a little, a little different. It looks clunky to me, but Yeah, I didn't get a chance to shoot that. I went to range day. I don't know if they had it out there or not. I don't remember. I think that. they did. It was probably very crowded. Maybe. And uh, you didn't feel like standing in line. I don't deal with crowds well. <laughs> no, me neither. We're too old for crowds. Yeah. I just uh, don't deal with that very well at all. Um, 
so we missed you there. I was hoping that um, you might make an appearance, but uh, maybe next year get you. Maybe, maybe. You, you know, I should have done for my book uh, targeted last year, which is explicitly pro gun rights book and pro uh, politics, my politics book. That would have been much more appropriate. Uh, I would say that uh, uh, the Bullet Garden is culturally conservative, but it's not. It's not political in it's any historical. sense. It's it's very historical. Yeah, it's historical, and it it honors history, and it honors uh, the sort of personality that it takes to win wars, and all that stuff is uh, some people unfortunately find a little bit dubious these days. Yeah. So what's new? What's next on the horizon? Well, right now I'm working on a book that will be called Lone Gunman, and it consists of uh, the, the subtitle is Three Swaggers, Three Stories, and it's three uh, novellas, one, star, uh, one with uh, Charles, the grandfather, one with Earl, the son, and one with Bob Lee, the, uh, uh, the, the grandson. And I, I kind of, uh, uh, because it's shorter, because it's, each one is less than 200 pages long, I've written two of them. I haven't written the third one. Uh, it's kind of a, uh, the plots aren't nearly as complicated, say, as the Bullet Garden is. They're sort of on the level of a, a mid-50s uh, a Western. They're always about oh. strangers riding into town. The town is always some hellhole of corruption, and, and, and somehow our hero uh, makes friends with some of the victims of the, uh, uh, it's it's like the man with no name, except in this case he has a name, and it's Swagger of various generations, and nice. uh, it's been it's really been fun. I I've got to create some some milieus that are just fascinating to me. Uh, America, nineteen forty seven, is one, uh, and it's just I, I I've just again I can't do this stuff if it's not fun. Sure, you know you can't. Say to me, Steve, you can make a billion dollars if you wrote a book X, Y, and Z. I couldn't do it. I don't want to write a book about X, right. Y, and Z. I want to write about America in 1947. If you don't want to read that, that's fine. But hopefully I'll get it published and we'll, uh, and we'll take it from there. Oh, I'm sure you'll have no doubt getting that published. Now, Charles, the, the, grand, the grandfather, right? Yeah. Um, did we go? He was go FBI back? in 1934. Okay. Although in 1934, it didn't. People don't realize this, but they didn't call the FBI the FBI until or it wasn't officially the FBI until 1935. In 1934, it was the Division of Investigation. So in my Charles books, it's always the Division, not the FBI. Oh, nice. Uh, just a little historical accuracy for the sake for its own sake oh i love that now do you have any plans to go on even further back to the the wild west getting into some western uh, it's funny stuff? Dude gingrich asked me the same question oh, i'm sorry how about that <laughs> great minds think alike <laughs> my bad <laughs> well uh, you know with the yeah. yellowstone and all that that's that's you know wildly that popular now is you know that's a good point that is a very good point i haven't thought of that yeah it would seem like there is the times would be right and uh, I, I, I won't put it out of. I can see your. Out, there's out the there's a spark there. You know, these things float around in the cuisinart <laughs> of my brain, and sometimes they pop to the surface. Who knows? Well, there. I mean, that's. I would like to see that. I think you would do a. Uh, you would do it justice. I think it would be. Unfortunately, I'd have to learn to ride a horse to do that. Right? <laughs> I don't. I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think you need to do that. Uh, there's that virtual, you know, reality nowadays that you can. That's I, I know. It's putting a lot of guys like me out of business. No. I have to keep coming up with stuff that's a little bit better than what they offer. Well, you keep knocking it out of the park. This bullet guarding, uh, it's it's one of my favorites that I've that I've read in probably the past, I don't know, ten years at least. This because it really, it, again, like you said, you're not getting political in it. It's it, there's a lot of factual historical events, but then you've got the entertainment, the action. Even throw a little love in there. There's a little love story in there too. A little love, yeah. Yeah, a little little romanticism. Of course, yeah. 
you know, that's that was that era too. You know, it was a very romantic well, era. One of my theories of the Second World War that I express in this book is that there probably wasn't as much sex as everyone thinks there was. Because sort of sexual, particularly among young American women, they didn't really, they weren't, it wasn't in their minds to have sex before marriage. It's not that they, it's not that they felt, you know, especially virtuous. It's just that that's what society said. To go against that was very, very, uh, very, very tough. So it wasn't like everybody was getting laid every night. It was, everybody was dancing every night and then kissing chastely on the cheeks and, more flirtatious goodbye. activities yeah. than anything. Yeah, absolutely. Well, guys, make sure you go and check this new book out by Stephen Hunter, The Bullet Garden and Earl Swagger Novel. You're not going to be disappointed in it. Uh, you get lefties thumb up, thumbs up, whatever that means for you. But <laughs> well, tell them if they want to, if they want a western from me, if Lefty and Newt yes. want a western from me. We got to keep Lefty and Newt happy. So you got to buy a lot of these books so they'll still publish me. Perfect. There you go. There you go, Leadheads. That's how we get a Western out of Stephen Hunter. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm looking forward to. Uh, Stephen, it's been a pleasure having you on. I greatly appreciate it. And you're always welcome back anytime. The Thank lead, you, Lefty. The Leadheads love you. I love you. Uh, can't wait for the next novel to come out. We're going we're gonna to review it here with you. On the next Sounds good. Are you still doing like one a year, two a year? Still popping those out? I'm trying to do one a year. Uh, it just there's so many other things. It's not just me doing the work. It's schedules, publishing schedules, and publishing politics, and publishing enthusiasm, and all sorts of things like that it's, I, that that I can't control. I just have to smile my way through. <laughs> just grin and bear it as the yeah, exactly. Oh, speaking of Barrett, you know they sold their uh, company? I saw that. Yeah, that's very interesting. Did you see that? Uh, yeah. Not to the Chinese, I hope. But was it somebody from Europe? I think it was, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I haven't really gotten into the detail. You know, they live, I mean, they're right here in my backyard. I'm in Murfreesboro, okay. Tennessee. So I ran into Chris on my way the day before SHOT Show. Uh, I had to get a new phone, and I was on my way out, and he was on his way in, and uh, he, he's got a good poker face. He didn't. He didn't let on at all that they were uh, uh, getting ready to sell. So, yeah. Um, but Stephen, again, um, I'm going to put all the links, guys, on the show notes that you can go uh, get in touch with Stephen. His uh, Facebook, if he has one, his Instagrams. Simon and Schuster is the best place to go. They've got great uh, bio and information on all his his novels there at Simon and Schuster. And a big thanks to. David Brown for making this happen. Uh, thank you, David, over at Simon & Schuster. So, Leadheads, until the next episode, as always, keep your loved ones close. Keep your firearms close. And remember, 45s are for actual men. 